Hey, everybody. On this episode of the Raise podcast, I caught up with Laura Day, Director of Annual Giving at Williams College. Williams consistently has one of the highest alumni participation rates in the world. And prior to joining the Williams Advancement Team full-time, Laura volunteered for Williams and led her class to achieve over 70% participation. She's also a member of Evertrue's inaugural 40 Under 40 class, and it won't take you long to understand why. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Laura. Here we go. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Race Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome our guest, Laura Day, the Director of Annual Giving at Williams College. Welcome, Laura. Hey, Brent. So we have known each other for a long time. I feel like we've kind of been uh, kindred spirits from how you got into the sector and how I got into the sector. And so we often ask our guests, uh, how did you first hear about advancement? How did you stumble into it? And you shared that you got into this sector, and I quote, totally backwards and by accident. And you're now leading one of the best annual giving programs in the world. So tell us about that journey. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's absolutely are you? How'd you end up? This was not at all what I imagined myself doing. Um, So one of the the joys of my life is that my family is often sort of, there's a sort of an educational through line that you can trace. Um, And I kind of only recently discovered there's actually also a philanthropic through line that you can trace, but the educational one is where I, where I went. So um, I'm a Williams alum. I was class of 04 here. And after that, Um, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with fundraising or asking people for money. I had been a financial aid student my whole life. And so I was really tired of the bake sales and the magazine sales and the asking for money to try to support the trip for the choir and all those different things. Um, So I wanted nothing to do with fundraising. Uh, I went into, moved to New York and worked for the nonprofit performing arts scene there. Um, Worked for a a, uh, small company um, called the Metropolitan Opera Guild. Um, And... There worked my way up from, I started as a sort of part-time ticket attendant. And by the time I left six years later, I was the youngest person by 15 years on senior staff. So you um, graduated from Williams. Yep. One of the top colleges in the world. And you were like, I need to get into part-time ticket sales. That was sort of the career path. I mean, it seemed like the logical step, right? Um, so I was actually a music major at Williams and there was a, a brief moment. Uh, it lasted all of about uh, two hours when I thought perhaps that I wanted to be a performer. Um, and yeah. Moved had in. you gone down that path, mm-hmm. what show would you be in right now? Or, or, or how would you be performing musically? Um, so I probably, yeah, yeah, I don't even know. I was, uh, I was a vocalist. The, one other piece that, that uh, you and I share, Brent, is a history of growing up in the Midwest. Um, so I grew up in Northfield, Minnesota, about a stone's throw from the St. Olaf College campus. Um, and many of my neighbors were in the music faculty there. Um, my dad was actually an English professor there, which was that sort of educational through line I mentioned for my family um, or part of that. Um, and so I often, growing up, viewed like music as a logical way forward and some, something that I loved very dearly. Um, I was a music major here at Williams Music and American Studies Double. Um, and so it was part of who, it is part of who I am um, and, and how I view myself. And so that was a logical thing to consider doing. And uh, the, the um, more pragmatic side of me also recognized a need to figure out if it was really what I wanted to do because it wasn't, I'm not one of those people who lives, breathes, and is the art. 
but it's something that I have always done and that I always will do and that I always love. Um, and so it was a, a question of how much of that did I want to be a central uh, guiding post in my career and how much of it was something that was just part of who I am and how I operate in the world and, and find other ways, excuse me, outside of my profession to, to scratch that itch. Um, so it turns out that's the better approach for me is to find, find more ways of doing it outside of work. Um, but at the time, I didn't know that. It's, it's sort of the journey that you have to learn. Um, and so I was taking classes at uh, Manus College, the new school for music, um, continuing my voice studies, and picked up this part-time job for the Met Opera Guild. I was selling lecture tickets and score desk tickets and working next door to the folks uh, running the backstage tours. Um, and about six months after I started doing that, my supervisor, one of my two supervisors at the time, retired after 28 years in the role. And I suddenly found myself in charge of a lecture series. Um, but I, I took that series from a, a 28, um, 28 event program to about 104 events over the course of the Met performance season. Um, and as I say, sort of worked in a number of different ways. Basically anything having to do with opera and education for the Met that was not having to do with schools was what I was doing at the time. While I was also doing that, I was uh, finishing uh, work at around 6.30 taking the elevator down, walking across Lincoln Center Plaza, and then taking another elevator up at Fordham and completing an MBA there um, before keeping on all the way home um, and my nightly commute. And so when I finished my How many MBA, other um, music students uh, were in the MBA program that year? Yeah, one, one, it was me. Um, I was also one of maybe three liberal arts students uh, or other folks not working in finance. So what was the catalyst to do that? I mean, it's uh, served you well and we'll get more into that, but at what point on that journey were you thinking I might go into the performing arts or get my MBA or, or both? Yeah, so I, I was enjoying the work I was doing um, in, the, in the nonprofit art scene, um, but also recognized that I had started at one of the biggest fish in that particular pond and had worked my way up very quickly. And so in order to make any sort of career transition, there was going to be this whole other skill set that I would need. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognized the MBA program as one of the ways I could get that. Um, and I intentionally chose that instead of a more niche program, uh, like say a master's in performing arts administration, because I recognized the transferability of those skills and wanted to make sure that I gave myself the flexibility to, to take whatever journey might next occur to me. So what was that program like and anything stand out as being, I mean, I, I just imagine um, uh, there had to be some moments that were challenging just given uh, where you'd spent your, your educational focus area on to then sort of jump into the business deep end. I mean, was that, but at the same time, you had a window into some of that through your early career work after college. So would you recommend an MBA in general? And, and specifically, what do you um, reflect on or, or what skills maybe do you use the most from, from, that, uh, from that program? Yeah, um, the most, I mean, the, the most transferable and the most relevant pieces for me today are still the training in, in, and the um, extensive background in leadership and team leading, leading through change and uh, communicating communications in particular, a couple of classes on cross-cultural communications and negotiations. And I find that in particular, while it was really billed as a program around a multinational type of 
cross-cultural. There's also a bit of cross-cultural conversations that happen internal to higher education mm -hmm. um, between administrators and students, between administrators and donors, uh, between students and donors or students and alumni. It's, there's a little bit of some, some interesting, uh, interesting cultural shifts happening and, and having a firm grounding in ways to manage that and navigate that has been, has been helpful for me. I love negotiations and the art of negotiation. And that was one of the things in my business school program that I enjoyed the most. And I recently read a book called Never Split the Difference by a guy named Chris Voss, who is a, an FBI hostage negotiator. And it was just such a good um, refresher on negotiation. And it's one of those things that uh, whether it's at work or uh, at home or with, you know, family or whatever. It's just, it's a really interesting skill that um, there is so much science behind it that it, it, it uh, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that that was something that really mattered for you in the context of higher ed, where you do have to uh, tactfully negotiate and influence oftentimes not having direct control or power over a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it also um, is part of what ultimately made me feel really comfortable about making a shift into fundraising. Um, taking a, a, a small town Midwest girl and plunking her in the middle of rural Massachusetts meant that, you know, I brought a lot of my own preconceptions about what negotiation was. And it was very Midwestern and delightfully terse and not very forthcoming and not a lot of sharing, but a lot of goodwill, but just like behind a poker face, right? Um, and turning it, turning it into a much more comprehensive approach, thinking about what are the ways in which you're not splitting the difference, you're not redividing the pie so that some people get more than less, but what are the additional pieces of value that can be brought to this conversation to make, to, to make it more rewarding and fulfilling for everyone involved? And that really helped me flip my lens um, and recognize the ways in which I have really good skills and training for this work, even though it's not anything I imagined myself doing. And so you did the MBA program and then started feeling um, like there was a ceiling or maybe there just wasn't an opportunity for advancement in some of the interest areas that you wanted to pursue and ultimately started moving towards the education fundraising world and, and Williams was your ticket to doing that. Um, walk me through that, that part of the journey. Yeah. So at that point I still thought I wanted to run a nonprofit organization, an arts organization. Um, I recognized I had gotten most of the skills that I set out to achieve through the MBA program, but of course fundraising is a huge piece of any nonprofit uh, position, regardless of what role you're in. Um, and I recognized a need to get better training and skills in that. And that was not anything, even with, you know, a 15 to 18 month typical tenure for a fundraiser in New York, no one was going to take a chance on me, um, with that. So I said, well, who do I know that does this well and how can I learn? And so that's the moment at which I raised my hand and became an agent for my class at Williams. I stepped in as a head agent in, uh, February of 2010. Um, and so that was for Williams, we have a delightfully bizarre schedule where our uh, fiscal year is a July 1 to June 30th, like many, many others. But we are incredibly peer-to-peer -peer based and our volunteers are active October 1st to March 15th. 
So for me to come into this new role, I really only had about six weeks of experience um, to gain in that fiscal year before then gearing up for the next year. And um, in the, our, my class, the class of 04 had a really strong participation history, decent dollars raised. So at that point we were six years out. Um, so still very much young alumni, uh, but with a, again, a strong history of participation, typically mid fifties to mid to low sixties. Um, and in the four years that I was head agent for our class, we broke 70% every year. So turned out it was something I was actually pretty decent at too. And, uh, and so you really viewed, yeah, look, a lot of people get uh, roped in as volunteers by another friend who asked them to help and they agree to help. But you really viewed the class agent experience as basically an unpaid internship. Absolutely. Where, where you could uh, learn the business of fundraising on a small scale focused on your class but have measurable results. I mean, were, did you, at what point did you feel like, wow, we're, you know, we're basically the best in the world at this. Williams has one of the highest, if not the highest alumni participation rates, but you didn't think let's maintain that. You, you thought, how do we take it from great to greater and from 50 to 70% plus when did you realize that there was that opportunity and did you have a game plan? Did you set a goal or did you just um, sort of intuitively attack it in a manner that other people don't and, and, and the results just followed? I mean, like I imagine the team at Williams for all the good results they've seen still said, wow, <laughs> 70% plus consecutively, not just in reunion cycles, is borderline unheard of. Uh, so was that a goal or, or did it just happen? You know, it sounds ridiculous, but it kind of just happened. Um, and I, I, that's the wrong answer because it, it, there was a ton of work that went into it, but it wasn't a goal that I went into the experience with. My goal going in was what can I learn from this? And, and uh, I very much viewed it as a high reward, low risk type of situation where like, quote, the worst thing that would happen, right, is that I raised money for my alma mater where I was already a loyal donor anyway. There's a place that I cared about, a place where I met my husband, we got married on campus, like those types of things were very much already part of my relationship with the college. So of course, I'm going to do what I can to contribute back. Um, and volunteering while also learning was a key part of it for me. I think one of the things that was surprising to me um, was just recognizing that that wasn't the approach that everyone was taking. Not that people weren't looking to learn, but you know, there's, there's often a bit of a formula that comes together around this. And it's, you can see it in, in the structure of most annual giving shops, as far as there's a direct mail person and there's a list pulling person and it's very sort of task-based work. And you've got your calendar for the year all planned out and all this stuff. And I gave myself the flexibility to um, walk into a, uh, an art museum or think about the other types of nonprofits that I was interacting with while I was in the New York area and intentionally pick up a, a membership brochure and see what are they saying about themselves? Why are they saying it that way? What would happen if they said it this way instead? Would that make a difference? Um, and thinking about the really geeky things like listening, actually paying attention to the, uh, the NPR fund drives on WNYC and things like that. Again, how are they framing things? Why, what motivation are they trying to tap into when they're framing things in specific ways at specific times? Because if you 
listen to enough NPR, you notice that a lot of the matches tend to come up between 7 and 9 a.m., um, which is sort of when people are puttering around home, making their coffee and trying to get out the door. So why? Why is that the time at which they try to tip people in as donors, recognizing that the match is a motivator for so many? So this is really timely because on Saturday, uh, I just had a uh, Brown Football Association board meeting and I'm going to be helping on a volunteer basis with, with our fundraising efforts. And, um, and so I was looking at the class of 2004 football alumni, the same way that you got a list of the class of 2004 Williams alumni when you started uh, as a volunteer. And, you know, I, the way I think about it is, okay, we have this broad participation issue. We, we do not have strong participation uh, consistently. And that applies to pretty much every single class that we work with. And so I, I really got into the data from just my teammates, my classmates, people I know really well. And it was just sort of looking at the basics. Okay, how many have ever given, right? How many gave last year? What's the max amount anyone has ever given? And if we could just get all of these guys to give the best gift they've ever given in the same year, our results would be five times better. Mm -hmm. And so the question is for me, I know that with, with that group at that level, it's 30 people. It's just scheduling the time, having the conversations, explaining why now is a time to get reconnected and engaged. And we are going to, 5x the results among my class. I have zero doubt. The question is, how do we scale that to 2,500 other Brown football alumni? And I think that there have been a lot of attempts at the quick fix, the gimmick, you know, this new tool, that thing. Um, but ultimately, how do you reflect on your experience going from 50% to 70% and then asking yourself the same thing, which is how do we scale this to 20,000 Williams alumni, um, recognizing that not everyone is going to have the same professional motivations that you had, where, where they're going to treat it like an unpaid internship. Or maybe the answer is we have to find people who treat it like it's a job and we can't rely on, um, uh, you know, more sporadic volunteers, let's call it. So I'm just, I mean, literally, this is what I'm working on this week, trying to figure out how do we go from where we are to, you know, we could legitimately triple, I think, our results in both donors and dollars if we can come up with a scalable way to personalize outreach. But it's not going to happen through our giving day or through a better mail appeal. Uh, I think it's got to be human to human engagement. And obviously, Williams has a unique view on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think we're fully unique in this, but I think the level to which we rely on the personal relationships between our volunteers and classmates or, or other assignments is, is quite special. Um, and I've heard that from fellow alumni and I've seen that um, as we're training, say our senior class, uh, senior class agents, um, I tell them my story after I ask them to go around the room and introduce themselves and what motivated them. They have these lovely, beautiful, altruistic reasons for volunteering. Um, and I said, that's, that's great. I recognize the skill set that I wanted and I went after it to try to advance my career. And I'd say that's worked out pretty well, albeit not in the direction that I had initially anticipated. And that gets a chuckle, but it's also like, it's the truth. And 
you can come to this work for many different reasons. We've got plenty of volunteers who just manage their group of three suite mates who they lived with for two years, right? I mean, when we've got um, a alumni base of just shy of 30,000 and about 1,600 volunteers, you've got the flexibility to do that. Um, but it is also a level of, of, of guidance and coaching. I'm intentionally using those words rather than training, even though training is sort of the, the more standard uh, word to, to use here. Um, but I, I use those words around guidance and coaching because if it's done well, you don't know that there's somebody else giving any sort of advice or backing or roadmap to, to how to navigate this. Um, and I, I often think of uh, some of the samples that I've shared, again, with new agents and with young agents in particular, to let them see the level of, it's not personalization as in mail merging in Brent's name. It is a one-on-one -on -one piece of correspondence, whether it's a phone call, an email, or a text, really depends on the relationship you have with that person. But it's making deeply personal references. The, one of the gifts that I achieved as a, as a uh, head agent for my class, I very vividly remember sitting down and writing, I was uh, living in, in New Jersey and commuting into the city and sitting down at my desk at home, writing an email to a former crew teammate of mine um, because I had just started training for my first half marathon and I had gone on a long run that morning and I thought of her because it was one of my first 10 mile runs. And I was like, Oh my God, how am I going to make this? Cause I was a morning runner, but I need to eat something because 10 miles and I'm slow. I am, I'm like an elephant that can continue to run rather than a cheetah. Um, so I needed to eat something. So I thought of her and I remembered our early morning workouts for, for crew and I put together, you know, a simple peanut butter roll up on a tortilla and I ate that and it got me through my run and I had a great run and I sat down, I wrote her a message about it and said, and it made me think of you, uh, Lindsay. And I, you know, in thinking about you, I hope you'll continue thinking about all the good times we had on the water and that you'll continue supporting Williams this year. And she wrote back and said, you know, I never respond to these things because they're typically just not actually talking to me, but you made me laugh and you made me actually think about like the crazy stuff that we got up to. Um, and I'm so glad to hear from you. And yes, I'm making my gift as well. It's amazing the parallels with um, the sales world. And I think sometimes sales is considered a dirty word um, because of the, the bad connotations, but um, I'm in sales fundraising is sales and the way you stand out is by really personalizing things in a relevant, fun, insightful way. Um, and my, you know, with my team, I'm like, please don't send an email that says, Hey, Laura, I'm just checking in on the contract or, you know, how are we, how are we coming? Anything I can do? Like it, it, if you, if there's not a way to personalize and be helpful in every interaction, then it's a waste of your time and it's a waste of the prospect's attention. Every single touch point, we should be able to find a way to add value. It could be a relevant blog post or maybe a recent podcast episode or something that we saw in the news that was happening on campus. And that takes a few more minutes per interaction, but I think it compounds over time. Uh, and I do feel like that's one of the challenges with peer-to-peer -peer is everybody's looking for the quick hit. Everybody's looking for the, the, 
yeah, the, the, the mail merge where it, it feels personal, but it's not. And I think that is so different than a peanut butter on tortilla uh, roll up uh, reference. And so one of the debates that we're having, and I shared with you before we started recording that last night I was down at Emory and I think so highly of Josh Newton and Cutler Andrews, who just joined their team. And one of the things that we were discussing is for institutions that don't have the tradition that Williams has, where you have 1600 volunteers for 30,000 constituents, you must have uh, as strong of a, a ratio of alumni to volunteers in the world. Um, should other institutions that don't have that tradition try to chase that dream and, uh, you know, or do we need to find other ways to personalize outreach and engagement, uh, but not try to chase the Williams, Princeton, Dartmouth peer-to-peer -peer model because uh, it, it, it just, it just takes too long or it's, or it's not, um, it's just not doable. I mean, how, like there are people listening right now who are going to be so overwhelmed by the prospects of having 1600 volunteers and having some volunteers with three prospects who are sweet mates assigned to them. But that has resulted in a almost 90% retention rate at Williams. Um, and so I'm just curious to get your perspective. You must have people reach out all the time, say, Hey, Laura, we're thinking about a peer to peer program. Um, but it's not, it's not just about the technology or about, um, the strategy it's, can you actually get human beings engaged with other human beings without the kind of history that Williams has? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a matter of what you can prioritize and what your own institutional's values are. And that's sort of a broad statement, but when I think about how Williams got to where we are, it goes back almost 200 years. So like brief side tangent here for a piece of Williams trivia and Williams history in 1821, this is the way I remember hearing it on my Williams admission tour in 1999. Uh, in 1821, the then president of Williams, Zephaniah Swift-Moore decided to leave the college with half the faculty, half the students, and rumor has it half the books, to move halfway across the state to form a halfway decent college known as Amherst College. Uh, that is a true story, albeit slightly embellished. That is also not the way it was told on my Amherst pre-brush tour, which took place the same day. Um, but in that moment, or in the, in the weeks following that decision, the a group of Williams alumni came together and formed the Society of Alumni, which has been continually active since then and has rallied at multiple times and now continually um, in support of the college. So it was alumni who came together then to provide the financial and sort of moral uh, and emotional support for Williams to continue as a college in 1821. Um, the Alumni Fund traces its origin to the World War I uh, in the great um, spirit of, of uh, the students at the time. I think it was 94% of students enlisted during World War I. So in 1917, all of a sudden there was this massive, huge projected revenue uh, shortfall. And so alumni banded together at that moment to uh, attempt to raise $10 in 1917 dollars. 
from every alum um, to make up that shortfall. And that's really where our alumni fund started. Um, at that point, it was all about the dollars and not about the participation because it was really about the revenue shortfall. Um, then around 1933-34, we started to really start to focus on participation. And it was in part because the dollars were there, right? So when I talk about it, what you can afford to focus on, you don't have dollars, you have to focus on dollars. Much as we pride ourselves on participation, it is still the dollars that make up the, the need, that, the gap that needs to be filled every year. Um, when you have good confidence in the large percentage of the dollars coming in, then you can start to think about participation. Mm -hmm. And the extent to which you can think about your participation really focuses or really comes from how you value that as an institution, how you value alumni coming together to do something as opposed to being small pockets of alumni doing things where they have deep pockets, right? So with our history, participation is a clear institutional value and a clear priority for the alumni fund. Um, it's not something that is easily replicable, right? You can't just sort of pluck it out of Williams and put it somewhere else and have it just magically grow and take root in the same way because the history isn't there. The same sort of um, legendary stories about alumni coming together are different at different colleges and where they don't exist at different colleges. But if you think about something like Sweet Bar now, right? I mean, there's still still fighting through uh, over the last couple of years, but you can imagine that the Sweet Bar alumni who are engaged and motivated now are going to carry that legend forward in another way for that, for that college and their alumni. Yeah, I think, look, we feel very strongly that one-to-one -one human outreach is more important now than ever. Uh, I think that over the last 10 years, with the growth of marketing automation systems and everything being a mail merge, uh, there was a period when everybody rushed at that and started talking about marketing journeys and personalization. But uh, we are all so inundated with that and we are just around the corner, just so you know, we're film or we're recording this on uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So in the next week between Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday, we are going to be absolutely inundated with personalized emails from marketing automation systems that are going to um, increasingly uh, be, be lost in the noise. And so I, I think that from our perspective, we think the only way to achieve both dollars and donors growing in the coming years is by improved personalization. At the same time, I am very skeptical in the ability for other institutions to put the resources behind not just staffing volunteers the way that you do at Williams, but all of the cultural investment into why it matters in the first place and really getting that kind of commitment. And so our hypothesis at this point is that instead of trying to find uh, 50 volunteers to each take 20 assignments to personally solicit a thousand people, might you be able to recruit somebody and train them where they can have a 500 or 1,000 person portfolio, bring the personalized approach and the authenticity of a volunteer-like experience, but not have all the cat herding associated with it. So that's some of the digital gift officer programs and other related initiatives that you know, you know we're piloting with some partner institutions. And, and a lot of that really is trying to, trying to draw out the best of what Williams does 
but apply it in contexts that are not like Williams. And so we don't have evidence yet. Um, we've got a bunch of hypotheses about how that will influence improved retention and improved reactivation and potentially even upgrades um, in gift size. Um, and, and the beauty of the annual fund is you experienced in your volunteer work uh, and I, I experienced in mine at Brown is the, the numbers don't lie. It, 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 you know, there are some uh, multi-year complex pledges. It can take a long time at the major principal level, but we find out every year uh, there's a score on the scoreboard for the annual fund, uh, which I love because you can test things and try new things. Uh, whether it's technology or just new approaches, and then know if it worked or not. Uh, and so I guess, you know, when you think about um, that, I know that you are in a unique position through some of the work that you and some peer institutions are doing with the Schuler Foundation. And I would just love for you to share a little bit about uh, the context for how you got engaged with Schuler, what Schuler is, why they care about uh, this topic, and in the spirit of having very measurable impacts in a short amount of time. I, I, I'd love for you to um, share a bit on, on what you've learned over the last year or so. Sure, um, so the Schuler Educational Foundation, excuse me, Schuler, blah, blah, blah. the Schuler Education Foundation is based in Lake Forest, Illinois, and their primary objective is a, a Schuler Scholar Program. Um, so the foundation as a whole has about 100 staff uh, and 50 of them are basically situated at the foundation offices. And the others are distributed among and in residence at um, the partner high schools that the foundation works with. And if you go to one of these high schools as a student, you are supported from the moment you become a high school student through the minute that you finish college. So the foundation staff help uh, support the high schools and then support the high school graduates as they go on to really high achieving schools. And these are typically students who are high financial need, but high potential as well. And so the foundation uh, was created by Jack uh, Schuler and his daughter, uh, Tanya. Um, they're both Tufts alumni. And they're really focused on this model of higher education within the United States and thinking about the ways in which their further philanthropy can help support that model. Um, so Williams is one of five schools working with the foundation on a multi-year project around young, excuse me, young alumni engagement and philanthropy, where we're really focused on the ways in which we as higher ed fundraisers can and need to adjust our models and try new things and take some risks in order to gain the, the, the loyal donor base um, that so many schools are finding missing at this point. And this is not about, this is, this is one of those projects that's not about how do you close that dollar gap this year, but how do you make sure that you've got a rich and deep uh, future pipeline of donors who support higher ed and believe in it as one of their own priorities for 25 to 30 years from now. So it's definitely a long game project. Um, but it's really been interesting to, to work across the five schools. I mentioned Williams is, is in this with four others, and the others are Bates, uh, Carleton, Middlebury, and Wellesley. Um, and we've been working very closely with my counterparts at, at each of those schools uh, to share what we're doing. And that's one of the fun things about this work and this role in particular is 
not only do you have the annual cycle that you referenced, uh, Brent, but you've also got the fact that you're not trying to steal each other's donors, right? Like if Carlton, uh, which is in my hometown, gets an extra 50 donors this year, that's fantastic. And I can learn from what they're trying and I can try it at Williams and see if it has the same impact here or not. Um, so as part of that work, uh, we've really been focused on growing our loyal donor base. And for this project, we're looking at folks who have given in three out of five years at a not trivial, but still very much a participation amount. So um, Williams is unlike some schools, we have no minimum gift amount. We literally have donors who give us their two cents every year as in a, handwr a handwritten note and two pennies taped to the envelope on the inside. Your gift um, processing team just has a way to process those pennies. Basically. Yeah, they're thrilled. They are thrilled about it, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but so we're, there's no minimum for us, but I know many schools have sort of like a $5 threshold, at least for their mm -hmm. online giving form in order to make sure that it's worth processing the transaction. Um, in this case, we're looking at $20. And, and that's sort of a, an easy number for people to get wrap their heads around. It's also an easy dollar amount when it comes to thinking of a donor's mentality. For most folks, if you accidentally drop $20, you're not going to have your world be ended by that. But it is something that is also sort of very easily given away or, you know, you can spot somebody $20 if you happen to have cash with you, or you can Venmo them $20 to make sure that they can, you can pay them back in, in, right. in reverse, right? Um, so as part of that, there've been a number of things that we've been trying and things that we've seen the other uh, partner schools trying that have been, have been helpful, but most of it comes to thinking really about your donors or your prospective donors, not as a large group that's homogenous, um, but really as a number of individuals and what are the motivations that those individuals might have and what are the ways that you can think about the sort of natural clusters that appear within that population and within a diverse population and, and what are the types of things that they might have in common. Um, so there's been a, a number of um, different projects that we have learned from, one in particular in fall of uh, 18 and then again in the fall of 19, uh, there were two different surveys that were conducted by uh, RNL, uh, Ruffalo Noel Levitz, um, and the, the 2019 survey is also going live to about 50 schools uh, in February of 20 um, to see not just what are the bigger trends that might be at play, but also how does this group of five schools initially how does that group differ from or is similar to uh, a larger national audience? And uh, there are some specific targets or, or very specific quantitative goals around this initiative. Can you share, if not the specific targets, just the, the general metrics that are, are, uh, are a focus of this initiative? Sure. Um, so, so as we've been thinking about this, it is very uh, much based on the idea of growing our donor base. So each school did a deep data analysis for who are those folks that have given $20 or more consistently, that is to say in three of the five fiscal years heading into the start of the project. Um, and we want to grow that population. It is on us to retain them. That is sort of the part and parcel of what we do, but growing that population by uh, of those folks who have not been given consistently $20 or more, gaining a gift of $20 or more. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about sort of our donor base versus what we're calling our eligible pool, which is those folks who had not been giving more. 
um, than, uh, excuse me, who had been giving either less than $20 but consistently or who had been giving inconsistently at amounts greater than $20. Um, and thinking about the types of things, types of ways that we can grow that base by 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. In the first year, so in fiscal 19, all schools exceeded 30% growth to their donor base. And that was not what we expected. We were each going in with sort of a 10% growth goal uh, with an optimistic 20%. Um, and uh, several of the schools, two of the schools actually crossed the 40% threshold uh, in the first year. Now, what it, has, what it has turned up is that it is not, for our schools at this point, it is not necessarily a matter of acquisition or a lack of willingness to donate. But I go back to the, the conversation that you, or the thread that you started with the Brown football team. It's more a matter of churn among the donor base. And what we're looking at here is also not necessarily a leaky bucket retention phenomenon, but much more about donor churn um, and stickiness of donating and, and of giving to the colleges. And so one of the things, Brent, that you and I have talked about offline, which is kind of, kind of ridiculous, um, but very much true, is that Williams has a retention goal of 100% every year. So it's natural that you're not going to achieve that, but when I think about the work that I do and the work that my team does and the, works that, the work that our volunteers do, it is about making every alum feel confident enough in the college and feel both seen by, respected by, and like they are able to contribute to in, in a positive way, the college in every year. So every alum in every year, having a motivation and a reason to give is our priority it leads to really high retention. We don't actually have a single report that lets us measure our retention, but uh, because we're so focused on just making it not just palatable and easy as far as you know, removing friction or any sort of barriers, perceived barriers to entry, but making it appealing, making it something that you feel good about doing. And, and I think that that is why we are so focused on retention. It is for our business, for your business, for the opera, it, the number one most important uh, metric that is a health metric on on how the organization is performing, and and we believe that while Williams may have a unique culture and history that allows you to achieve a higher percentage of participation. Um, Every institution should be able to set incredibly ambition, ambitious goals around retention. And there's really no reason that retention should vary so wildly from one institution to the next, unless there is, and I think this is what we see, so much focus on acquisition or the gimmicks or the giving days or whatnot, that you get donors very transactionally to come in and give with no real plan, incentive, reason for them to become loyal donors. And so uh, there's a lot of focus on that right now by us and other companies. And I, I just feel like it is so addressable. But the thing that drives me crazy is, is there is this narrative that donors are down, dollars are up, participation's been on the decline, and the data proves that out. But then you take five schools, set ambitious goals, and all of you are able to massively improve it in a short amount of time. 
what's the secret and, and why can't every institution follow that lead? And obviously Schuler's objective is to develop generalizable lessons and strategies that can be applied more broadly to support philanthropy and higher ed. But what is it? Is it leadership? Is it goal setting? Is it data? Is it the technology? Like why can't every institution listening right now move those numbers by 30 or 40% over the next year or two? I don't know that I have the answer to that, but I think there are a couple of key issues that are not being addressed as thoughtfully as they should be. Um, one of them you already hit on is the, the day of giving type of gimmick. Uh, I know it is a successful strategy for many schools. It's not one that Williams chooses to pursue. Um, and it is not one I have any intention of pursuing. Uh, the best thing about giving days is that they, they get your live ones to give early, right? Like we already have that built in due to our delightfully bizarre calendar and our March 15th volunteer deadline. We, so by that date, we already see 95% of our donors and 95% of our dollars for the fiscal year. Um, so we don't have that issue and we have that, we don't need to, to, to go that route in order to achieve that objective. Um, but I, the other piece of it is it is so draining on staff and already I think you see uh, a, a short tenure among development professionals in general, but particularly so in annual giving. I've been in this role for six years and it's not for lack of other offers. It is because I find this work really engaging and really interesting. Um, I enjoy the fact that I get to try new things and then see what happens and try again next year. Like you sort of have to develop a bit of a thick skin around that. Um, but it's, if that's the type of thing that motivates you, it's great. Uh, but it is not for everyone. But I think the fact that often annual fund positions are viewed as junior and they are compensated in a junior way relative to major gifts means that you have really talented staff members who are constantly thinking about how they're going to move up or out within a three to four year time horizon maximum. Um, and that means that you're not able to build the relationships that need to be built between staff and volunteers or staff and donors in order to see the types of retention rates that Williams sees and that other schools who do have this type of model uh, typically are seeing. And that's something that I don't think is being addressed well, if at all, at most places. It's something that I personally focus on as far as making sure my team has access to professional development opportunities, make sure that they know that I very firmly believe in leadership from any chair. So, you know, when I'm when it is my meeting, I'm leading the meeting, but there are plenty of meetings where it is not my meeting, but I am a contributing factor to that conversation and it's being led by a, a different staff member um, on our team. I'm also very clear when I hire that like, if you're in a role that reports to me for longer than seven years, you probably need to repot yourself in order for your own growth, right? Like it's, once you hit your sweet spot, that's a really good thing to know and you should stay that in that type of role for as long as you can because that lets you maximize your strengths with what you're contributing and what you're able to achieve. And you just feel good coming out of that day. But there's gonna come a time when you're ready for a next challenge and that's great. And so what can I, as your leader and as your manager do to help you prepare for that transition if and when that point comes. But it's, I've had conversations with members on my team who were like, I was really surprised when you said that to me in an interview. <laughs> it's like, well, it's real. So you should know that. And you should know that in particular about working with me as your, as your leader, that that's a fairly pragmatic, but also like ultimately supportive of you as a person. 
Right. And you as, a, as an individual staff member will both be able to bring your whole self to work as part of that. You'll be able to contribute more to what you're doing now because you know that I'm not like freaking out and looking over your shoulder to see what are you looking at next? But if you're thinking about making a transition, how can I support you in that? Since we're on the topic a little bit of, of leadership style, I was uh, so inspired by your comment uh, about not checking work email on vacation or between 6 p.m. and 8 a.m. Uh, tell me about that and tell me how to do that. <laughs> um, so this is something that I take very seriously um, and I actually scold my team if they're responding to me over the weekend or uh, anything like that. If, if you're on vacation, you're on vacation. Um, if there is something that is urgent and that requires your attention that no one else can solve, we will text you and loop you into either a phone call or tell you what specific message to look at. I spent so much time before coming to this position just going crazy with emails from, uh, you know, going back to people upset about their tickets or things like that um, from my very first position at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. There's nothing that can, nothing positive that can come out of that other than me getting worked up and not sleeping well, which is actually not a positive thing. What's the opposite of a dopamine hit? Is that what we're experiencing in those kinds of emails? Or is it, is it, I, I don't know, but I, I, yes, I know what you're saying. It's like all the, you know, all the paper cuts and like the, the right. tiny things that really aren't that big of a deal, except you're reading it when you're already tired and should be, should have put your phone away and gone to bed. Um, so when I get home, I put my phone on a charging station and I will check it to see if I have any texts around the time that I start to put my kids to bed, uh, which is around, oh, well, embarrassingly late because my kids are night owls, but should be around eight or 8.30. Um, if there's no text and there's nothing else I need to do for that day. Uh, and similarly, then when I come in in the morning, I don't look at my phone until I'm, I have dropped my children off at, at school and I am either at my desk or walking to my office. And it's having those clear delineations. First of all, it, it's something that requires the commitment and discipline uh, to do it, but it also requires the buy-in from your own managers and making sure it's part of your team culture. There are plenty of times when, when that's sort of not a best practice, right? Like think about reunion weekend, there are text messages flying across staff at all the time and rightly so when there are things that come up at 10:30 at night that you need to deal with. I think it was 11:15 at night. Um, when I found out that I needed to be the person to actually be presenting all of the awards at our annual meeting uh, during my 10th reunion. Um, and that was fine. That was the right, that was when we found out. And so that was when I needed to find out and I needed to know that so that I was prepared in the morning. That's not the sort of thing you can walk into like, oh, surprise, you're in charge of speaking in front of 5,000 people this morning. I hope you brush your teeth, right? Like that's not, that's not good. Um, so that's a moment in which it is perfectly appropriate. But otherwise to, to, to try to set and maintain uh, some of those limits is something that's really important, again, because it lets you get a better recharge personally when you're away from the office. You can bring a better self back to the office to do the work. I love it. Very inspiring. Are there books you've read or blogs on that topic that, that you'd recommend or just sort of a personal philosophy you've developed? Um, it's sort of more of a personal philosophy that I've developed. But some of the, the readings that have stuck with me, frankly, from business school um, was Mary Parker Follett uh, and, and a lot of her work from the early 20th century around leadership and management studies. Um, 
I'm forgetting some of the specifics now, but it just in reading in reading some of her writings, it was very very helpful. Business school um, is not about the specifics; it's the general <laughs> frameworks that intuitively come out when you need them, right? Um, so we've talked a lot about participation. We've talked about the annual fund, but but one thing to note at Williams is that um, what is considered an annual gift. Uh, can be quite a bit more than what might be considered an annual gift elsewhere. And on that note, I know that uh, you have developed a real interest and passion around women's leadership giving. And I would just love you to share your perspective on how that topic uh, uh, became something that you wanted to uh, research more. And then some of the findings, obvious perhaps, but just some of the findings that are informing how you think about women's leadership giving at Williams and, and just as a definition, what is women's leadership giving at, at Williams? Sure. So um, I'll back up and just give that framework around our leadership giving program um, within the alumni fund. So as I mentioned, you know, we, we have no minimum giving threshold. We'll take pennies. We do take pennies. People often give um, sort of their class year in dollars or cents or both. Um, but our leadership giving program uh, within the alumni fund, we have a Graduated point of entry for young alumni in the first 10 years out, uh, as many folks do. Um, but a $2,500 gift uh, is considered a leadership gift for alumni 10 years out or older. Um, and our levels, our giving levels for leadership gifts to the alumni fund, to the annual fund, go up to $250,000. And we had, last year we had four donors making annual fund gifts of that amount. Um, you really want those renewals to come through, huh? Sure do. Yeah. But they are great, really great opportunities for folks to sort of make a test gift and see if it's something that they really have the appetite for in a sustained way. Um, and, and one of the things that my colleague Janine Hetherington, our director of leadership giving in the alumni fund has really focused on is what is that sort of entry level at that $2,500 gift? Um, and what are the things that we can do from a stewardship programming perspective at the $25,000 level, which is where we tend to do more of our differentiation around, around stewardship provided to donors. Um, and there we have a number of annualized programs. Um, so one is a four-year commitment at $25,000 uh, to sponsor an annual scholarship, an EAF scholar, as we call it. Um, that is from the Williams EAFs, which is our, our uh, mascot name. Uh, I guess technically the mascot's name is Ephelia, but it comes from Ephraim Williams, who is who's, and frankly, this might be part of where our sort of natural uh, cultural uh, culture of generosity and philanthropy comes from is that Williams was founded uh, as a result of the will of Colonel Ephraim Williams, who was a Revolutionary War um, Colonel, <laughs> uh, and uh, who was killed in, in battle um, near Lake George. Um, so we have other programs like that uh, to sponsor our tutorial program, which is a, a type of class in which a professor meets uh, once a week with two students at a time. And the two students um, have read the same material and one of them prepares a brief paper and presents that orally. And then the other one basically attacks it and, and debates it and discusses it and tries to tear it apart. And it's a, a very intense type of learning um, but enable students to get so strong at making a case, at defending their case, um, at the writing piece of it, of course, but also you develop this really robust relationship with the professor and your tutorial partner in that type of setting. Um, so that's at the $25,000 level. Uh, and as you, as we were looking through some of our data, we, we on June 30th concluded the Teach It Forward campaign, which was 
um, are most ambitious to date. We set out to raise $650 million um, and ended up raising $707 million from nine, uh, excuse me, 74.2% of alumni made gifts during the course of the campaign um, and 87.6% of alumni engaged with Williams in some way, shape or form over the course of the campaign. So we were really delighted by that. But as we were starting out on that campaign, you know, there was a bit of a, a there's something in the air um, around women's giving um, now, certainly, but also then uh, as we were getting ready to kick off in say 2012, 2013. Um, and so there was a preliminary analysis done at a major gifts level. And there's not a gap uh, for Williams. At that point, there was not a gap between women donors and men, male donors, as far as giving relative to capacity. So there is a general understanding, if you think about national statistics, women typically make less than men in comparable positions. It's somewhere around 75 to 80 cents on the dollar, depending on the other demographical pieces of the puzzle. So women of color make even less uh, relative to their white male counterparts, even when doing the same job. At a major gifts level, that all kind of makes sense. When you're talking about an annual leadership, do, uh, leadership gift of $2,500, that argument is not quite as strong. It's not, excuse me, it's not as relevant to the conversation. It is, of course, a very big problem from a societal perspective. But when you think about the types of careers and roles that Williams alumni come, in, come into coming out of college and what we know about finances, that is less of an issue, again, talking about a $2,500 annual gift. We looked more so recently. Your, your hypothesis is that as, as gift level gets lower, the relative disparity between male and female giving should inherently go down. It should, it should matter less in the giving decision, right? If you, um, if you are a typical Williams alum who is, I, don't, I actually don't know what our average salary is. I just know a lot of the young alumni data off the top of my head. So let's say... Um, if you're a typical young alum, uh, say 10 to 15 years out, you know, you're making your household income is between $75,000 and $150,000. That's not going to determine whether or not you make a $20 gift to Williams, right? So if we're talking at that level, it clearly makes sense. As you start to think about um, these increased levels, it, it can certainly come into play. Then... So we did a further analysis more recently looking at women uh, as a percentage of the alumni body. Williams went co-ed, we're actually in this magical window now where I don't know how to count it, um, where uh, 50 years ago last June uh, was when the trustees announced the decision to no longer be an all-male school. Um, the first class to include women as graduates was the class of 1971. The first class to include women for all four years was a class of 1975. So we're in this sort of six year window between the, the 50th of the trustees decision and the 50th reunion for that class of 1975, where we're celebrating women at Williams. Um, and as part of the preparation for that, we started to look at other, other types of potential disparities among, um, among our donor base. And we really hit on this leadership giving within the alumni fund as being the place where we have a greater uh, discrepancy. So William, uh, women at this point make up 39% of the Williams alumni body. And when we set out uh, on this course, when we started looking at this, they were only 26% of leadership donors. Now, again, thinking about the, the um, 
income disparity that we were just discussing, you would expect to see the discrepancy potentially at the top, but that was not the case. Um, women were proportionally represented at our higher levels of the pyramid, both in the, the, at the 250,000, at the 100,000, and at the $25,000 and up level. It's at these lower levels of leadership. So almost the exact opposite of the hypothesis or what Correct. you expect. Correct. And so what we did then was sort of peel that onion back a little more and start to look at it uh, in more detail and really we realized that it was our problem. We were not asking women as often as we were asking their male counterparts. And part of that comes into some of the inherent uh, social sexism, uh, you know, all the types of things that, that you could imagine around that. So thinking about both having an incredibly robust peer-to-peer -peer structure, um, but one that was really built in the 1930s when Williams was an all-male school. Uh, and at that point, based essentially a very, very white school as well. Um, and thinking about the ways in which the markers of wealth that a 1930s era white male guy from Williams would be looking for might be different than the markers of wealth that would be expected now from a woman or a person of color. Um, and so those indicators are things that our systems, frankly, weren't built to look for. Um, and they're things that are there. Uh, and if you're interested in more on this, I highly recommend reading some of the work that Mary Beth Gassman and Nelson Bowman have done. Um, but thinking about the ways in which we intentionally seek that information, either from alumni directly or from our volunteers. Um, and so it, it, you know, it plays out in little things like, um, I was just chatting last night with a good friend of mine who was a year behind me and, and his wife um, they have a son who's two and they're expecting their second child in the middle of the winter and thinking about, you know, they're in good shape. I know he's on our leadership prospect list. I know she should be as well. And because they're, they're closely held volunteers, they're, they're great folks. I know that they are, but often for most volunteers and thinking about a classmate in that situation, you know, he just got a promotion, but she is expecting their second child. If they're thinking about his ask amount, it likely tips him into an increased ask amount. But if you think about hers separately, she's pregnant, expecting a second child, they're gonna have another round of daycare and another round of everything else. Let's not ask this year, right? So, so making sure we're checking our own biases on that front. Yeah. Um, and there's still a whole heteronormative thread that I, that I recognize I just spoke uh, through without addressing. So just know that that's also part of what goes into our thinking. Um, but it is something that now uh, Janine Hetherington, uh, who I mentioned, and then Lauren McGrath, one of our, our major gift officers, um, and I have been working on for two years at this point, just sort of in the, the preliminary planning phases. Um, and we got connected with Kathleen Lohr from, uh, from the Aspen Institute, um, and her book, Gender Matters, is, is something that I also recommend to folks um, who are interested in thinking about how not just how you can increase the dollars raised from women donors, but how you can engage with women and women identifying folks um, in a more authentic way. And really what Kathleen's research turned up is that if you take what is a sort of typical approach for most places, it uh, is rooted in the same type of history that Williams is rooted in. So it's predominantly uh, white male history, but a much more diverse future. If you take the same paths that brought success for that white male, uh, less diverse group, it will continue to have many successes among that same type of population. 
But if you take an approach that's much, that is much more centered on the communications preferences, the types of events that appeal to a more diverse constituency, you will gain that group. And also that still speaks to the same types of interests um, as the historically dominant uh, populations. So in, in Kathleen's words, this is paraphrasing from the book, but if you speak to the men, you will get the men and not the women. If you speak to the women, you will get the women and they will bring along the men. So it's really been about a bottom line argument um, in terms of being able to maximize dollars raised um, from, a, from that level of, of analytical perspective that uh, Kathleen Lohr brings in the book. Um, but from our end, it's been just really welcomed by our alumni uh, who are eager to have these types of conversations around their philanthropy. Um, Lauren and Janine just hosted a dinner last week in New York with our board chair, uh, who is uh, herself a woman and a young alum leadership donor. Um, we had five tables, uh, each anchored by a woman who has prioritized Williams in her philanthropy. And the rest of the invitees were pre-25th reunion folks who were leadership uh, prospects who had been identified, may or may not have been giving at a leadership level. Um, and the invitation was come to the small group conversation and talk about the ways in which you want to engage with Williams and the ways in which you engage with your philanthropy. So being super direct about the fact that this is a conversation about giving, but giving broadly and how Williams can play mm. a part in that for you, um, but not, you know, come and talk with us and you will be asked for this money on the spot. It's much more of a long game kind of conversation. That's really insightful and um, a space that I look forward to learning more about. And while the, the sort of, um, from my position as a white male, my perspective on women's issues is through that lens. But I think that there are many examples that um, are rooted in history, that are traditions that inherently exclude new groups that have um, that have become a part of these communities as the communities have evolved. And just on a personal level, we have had a very successful golf outing for the Brown Football Association for 25 or 30 years. We have a diverse set of football alumni, and there are very different uh, adoption rates or participation rates in golf based on where you grew up, how much money you made, et cetera. And so on one hand, we don't think twice about having this golf outing because the guys from the seventies love it and they can talk about the first championship and get everybody together. And, and that is really important to them. And, and we want to steward them in a way that aligns with their interests and, and, and preferences. But at the same time, when you look at a photo of who is participating in the golf outing, and then you look at a team photo from the class of 2004, uh, looks different. And so, you know, we're constantly thinking about what are the more inclusive engagement activities that both respect those traditions and preferences of some of our most important philanthropic supporters, while also increasing access to uh, to people of color or, or folks with, with different interests and skills and, and uh, you know, 
and, and preferences around social activities, for example. So that's, you know, one, you know, maybe relevant example that we're sort of wrestling with right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that the approach that you take to become more inclusive doesn't have to, it doesn't have to feel like you're suddenly transforming the college into an instrument of a, being a social justice warrior by itself, right? It, it, they, these changes can be subtle, but they are noted by your alumni and they are absolutely noticed and, and taking note when these things are happening either in a way that does not include or invite everyone or in a way that does. And when there's that shift made, um, it's pretty remarkable. And this is not to say that we're doing everything right. We certainly make mistakes, um, but we're trying really hard to learn. And that's, that's a vulnerability of framing as well that a lot of schools either aren't comfortable taking or aren't willing to take yet to say like, this is something we believe in and we still will screw it up sometimes. And we are trying to learn and wanting to do better. And thank you for, for understanding and being part of that process. Um, I think about the, the RNL survey I mentioned um, earlier as we were talking about young alumni, you know, a lot of work went into revising that over the summer to have it be a more inclusive survey. You would not know in reading the survey that it is a quote inclusive survey because it's, 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 it's about subtle choices in language that just feel nicer and warmer and more welcoming than things that are more direct and brusque and to the point. Um, and it's not to say that it's an oblique survey either. It's just in reading the two, the one from 2018 versus the one uh, for 20, excuse me, 2019 side by side, that you see these subtle shifts and subtle changes. But it's enough that a, a good friend of mine, um, who is a Williams alum who took it in both years, uh, texted me immediately after and said, is it just me or were there changes that happened between last year and now? Cause that felt better to take mm -hmm. it than it did last year. Well, uh, one of the things that has made it so fun to work with you and your team over the years is that you are working, I think, as you describe it from a position of strength, but still not resting on your laurels and constantly trying to uh, test and explore new approaches that are not only, um, rooted in your interest in helping Williams excel, but uh, helping the industry excel more broadly. And I think the Schuler uh, initiative is one example of that, but I, I just can't thank you enough for sharing and for giving us a window into this amazing purple community uh, that you've been a part of. And uh, we have been kindred um, uh, spirits from our journey uh, from the Midwest to the Northeast to stumbling into volunteer programs and now having careers in the advancement sector. And I really look forward to continuing on that journey uh, with, with you as a friend and partner. Um, and, uh, and so with that, uh, we will wrap, but do you have any closing thoughts? Are you hiring uh, any, anything else that should be top of mind to the raise audience? Um, I'm actually not hiring. This is a, a really strong team that I've built over the last few years at Williams. Um, and, uh, you know, being somebody who prioritizes staff development, I have a good, really solid team in place. Um, but it is, it is rare to be in this type of role and not be hiring. Um, I think one of the, the things that, as I just sort of reflect on our conversation today, Brent, one of the things that I would encourage my counterparts in annual giving in particular to, to, to think about is 
what are the things that drive you? What are the things that get you out of bed in the morning and make you excited about coming in and doing this work even on July 1st, right? When everything resets to zero. And what are the ways that you can use that to improve your own work or to it, it, both in terms of how you approach your work and what the outcomes are? For me, one of my motivators is learning. And so that's part of why I get really excited about having time to plan over the summer and thinking about what are the ways, what are the little shifts that we can make that might make a big difference down the road. Um, but I just encourage everyone to think about that piece of it and good luck. All right, well, I'm gonna report back with the results of the Brown football alumni participation improvements that happen over the next next six months. And I may uh, tap you for advice and guidance in that endeavor. Thank you so much, Laura, for participating today. Uh, and without further ado, we will wrap today's episode of the Rays podcast. Thanks everyone. Mm-hmm.